good morning. I hope everybody is doing well today, whether today is uh, your first day, you've been around for a long time, or you're tuning in uh, online. We're grateful that you have chosen to be with us. This is week number nine of our series called New, as we're going through the Revelation, the last book uh, of the New Testament. And as we are looking at that, we've said every week, kind of over and over, uh, just to remind ourselves that the Revelation is more about present hope than it is about a future calendar, right? That it was written to comfort us and to confront us uh, more so than it was written to confuse uh, us. In some ways, um, I feel like Revelation uh, has kind of been like going to counseling, right? The whole comforting and confronting uh, side uh, of us. I don't know if you felt that way. Um, a week before my daughter's wedding uh, in August, it was hot on a Saturday and I'd been outside doing some uh, yard work, and I was getting ready to go, uh, get ready to get on the mower to mow the grass. And uh, Angie, my wife, she walked outside and she said, uh, she said, hey, um, would you mind if I mowed the grass today? She said, honestly, it would be like therapy for me. And I am not the kind of person to deny someone therapy. I'm a giver. I want you to know I'm a giver. Uh, and so I think about Revelation in kind of that context, that it is, um, what Revelation does for us is it brings together these things that we see in the world. What you just heard Chad say uh, a minute ago, like the, the beauty and the brutality uh, of the world, right? We see both of those things. We see violence and we see victory. Those two things operating simultaneously in the world, not just either or, but it's, it's a both and. And Revelation helps us make sense of how both of those things could be true, how both of those things could, uh, could be reality um, in our world and how we can have a perspective uh, to see those things. And so as we look at Revelation chapter 19, uh, today, what we're going to see are two very opposite pictures that come together. Um, you've, got, uh, you've got this feast of the birds, and then you've got this feast um, of the bride. One brings an end uh, to Armageddon. The other one inaugurates um, an eternal uh, kingdom. These two things, these two events come together in one chapter, and maybe as much as uh, any place, anytime, anywhere, I think, appropriate for our week and the place that we find ourselves in the world today, they help us see and make sense of it. They're, they're like counseling. They're like uh, therapy, presenting us this picture um, of, of, future, uh, of future hope. So if you have a copy of the scriptures and you want to turn there, turn over to Revelation uh, chapter 19. And we're going to take first, uh, we're going to look at the Feast of the Birds. This is kind of the, the earthly picture uh, of what's going on here um, out, into, out into the future at the end of the chapter. And then we're going to work our way backwards to the beginning of the chapter to uh, the, uh, the picture uh, of the Feast of the Bride. So Revelation 19 says this, uh, verse 11, Then I saw heaven open, and behold... A white horse, and the one sitting on it is faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows um, but himself. We see this uh, incredible picture of Jesus returning from heaven, riding a white horse. His eyes are on fire. Uh, it, it's it's amazing, quite frankly. Uh, and we need this picture of him because a lot of times when we think of Jesus, we think of uh, him as a humble Galilean peasant. 
And there is that picture, right, of Jesus. When he, the first time he was here, he didn't ride a white horse. Uh, when he was coming into Jerusalem the last week of his life, he rode a donkey, right? He rode a beast of burden as a humble servant coming into the city. Now, they wanted him to be the warrior, Messiah, right? That's what they, that's what they, they wanted him uh, to overturn Rome. They wanted him uh, to be involved politically, to set up the kingdom, to restore Israel to its former greatness. But instead, he comes in to the city, a humble king. Now, the problem with that, I mean, they misunderstood the mission, Jesus said, to come and seek and save the lost. The, the only issue there is that that's the only way that we see Jesus. That even today when we think of him, we think of him only as a humble peasant king. The ironic thing is that when he comes back, he will not come back. He will not return as a humble peasant king. But he will return as the warrior Messiah. He will return eyes on fire on a white horse coming to bring an end. Bringing an end to all the violence, all the injustice, everything that we see. And you know, for the last nine to ten days, as we look at the world, I feel like we've been, um, <clears throat> we've been startled, jolted, uh, if you will, awake by the reality of ever-present evil. Sometimes we just get lulled to sleep a little bit. And in the, in the terrorism, uh, the attacks of, of Hamas, which is uh, kind of a bone-chilling homophone, if you will, um, Hamas... Is, uh, it's, it's an acronym, it's an Arabic acronym um, that stands, eventually what it means is the Islamic resistance movement. But it's using Arabic letters and language, it's, it's, an, it's an acronym that describes that. At the same time, the homophone part of that is that there is a Hebrew word, Hamas, um, which going all the way back to Genesis chapter 6 means aggression or violence. And in the attacks, and I don't know how much you've watched, how much you've seen, how much you feel like you can observe and see and watch. I watched the four-minute clip from, um, from Nova, from the music festival that was there where 260 people uh, lost their lives from the firsthand reports um, that were there. And just unbelievable as we watched, you know, Israel's 9-11, really their, their version, um, even more so when you compare the population numbers uh, per capita. And as we watched the aggression, as we watched the violence um, kind of unfolding there, it's just, it's a reminder uh, to us of what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6. There are principalities and powers spiritual forces of darkness and wickedness that are at work in this world. There's intelligent evil, right, that we cannot see that is warring against the armies and the presence and the spirits of God right now in the world. And it is on display firsthand. So I would just ask you and us as a church body to pray a couple of specific ways. Um, one is that uh, I've mentioned to you a number of times that our network of churches supports over 3,000 chaplains, uh, military chaplains, school chaplains, uh, police chaplains, uh, fire department chaplains. Ten to 15 of our chaplains are inside the borders of Palestine right now serving our 30-some thousand soldiers that are in the region. <clears throat> so, man, please be prayerful um, for them. Uh, secondly, we are partnered with an organization uh, that's there. I won't say the name of it just for security reasons. 
um, but we are financially partnered with, <clears throat> excuse me, partnered with them. And as you are giving here, you're financially supporting them uh, as they give out water and blankets and food to people who are displaced. So they're doing what we, what we do, what Jesus kind of does best. He is light in the middle of darkness. And it's just been a good wake-up call. If God could use this terrible thing in our lives in any way, it's a wake-up call, right, for us. Um, if you've ever been startled, uh, awake, like you've ever been in a dead sleep, and you're just woken up, right, in the middle of the night. Um, you've got kids or nieces, nephews, whatever. Um, every now and then when our kids were little, Angie and I would be middle of the night, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, in the middle of dead sleep. And one of our kids would sneak into the room very quietly. Didn't wake us up. Just quietly walk over to our bedside. Didn't wake us up. Got right down here in our face. <clears throat> Dad! <clears throat> and listen, you can have all you, you know, whatever, um, Freddie, Michael, Jason, you can have all that you want. There's nothing more terrifying than being startled awake, right, in the middle of the night by a child right here with that nasty hot breath. Right, right in your face. And I feel like that's what it's been um, for us over the past, over the past week or so and what we've experienced. And it is a reminder to us that this, we need this warrior Messiah, that we can't fix it on our own and that he is coming, that he is on his way. Watch, uh, watch what happens in the next verse, in verse 13. It says this, he is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. We're following him um, on white horses. Jesus is going to show up at the end of time to bring an end uh, to evil. And he is going to show up in a white robe. Now, I want you to think about all of the famous battle scenes that you've ever watched. Uh, all the, the ones that have ever been depicted there. You've seen paintings of how many of those armies were wearing robes, white robes, no less. I want you to think about what we see in the world. The, the enemies of God, right, are going to bring all of the, all of the uh, military might, the technological power and force of, of the spiritual darkness and the physical darkness that exists in the world against Jesus. And he's going to show up in a nice wrinkle-free polyester blend, right? <laughs> and what does that tell you? It tells you that the armies of the enemy have no chance. This is a battle that is no battle, right? That he's going to show up in a white robe and he's going to walk out in a white robe. The, the, now, the one thing about his robe, it says, is that it's dipped in blood, right? And throughout the Revelation, we have seen our alliance and allegiance as believers with uh, the slain, the slain lamb. This, that we have been washed, we've read in Revelation, we've been washed in the blood of that slain lamb. And that is not an accidental comment. In Asia Minor, where these seven churches were located... Um, it was a preferential spot for the cult of Mithra, or the bull. They saw this, um, this spiritual sense of power in, in the bull, right? So what they would do is they had this ceremony called the Tarabolium. 
And they would take a soldier in a, in a dugout pit, and they would put a, a soldier in a pit and a grate over the top. I'll, I'll show you a, a picture of it, um, an artist's rendering of it. Um, and so what they would do is when they would slay a bull, they would slay the bull over the top, and the blood would run through the, the grate down onto that soldier. And he had to let that blood run into his nostrils and into his mouth, and in doing so, that soldier was declared Reinaltus and Alternum, reborn for all eternity. And so when John makes this reference that you and I have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, what he's saying is we're not washed in, in the blood of, uh, of the Mithra cult, right? We're not, we're not washed in human power dynamics. We're not washed in our own strength, but we are washed in the blood of the slain Lamb, the God, the warrior Messiah who's going to return, who's going to bring an end to all evil. And this feast of the birds is going to commence. Verse 17, if you read through Revelation 19, verse 17 says, And he will call the birds to come and to clean up the battlefield. And we look at that and we think, gosh, that's, that's brutal. And Jesus is saying, enough. Enough with the evil, enough with the darkness, enough. I'm going to bring an end to it. And in the midst of this brutality, we also see, we also see beauty. Look back up early in the, earlier in the chapter at the other meal in verse 7. It says this, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. There's a second meal that's described. It's not just the Feast of the Birds, but then you've got the Feast of the Bride. It's referred to um, in a lot of theological uh, circles as the marriage supper um, of the Lamb. That Jesus, his bride, his church, has made herself ready and waiting on him uh, to come and to be with. So you see this... um, you see this dichotomy right between the two? Chad introduced us last week um, to Babylon and to the beast, right, and to the prostitute in Revelation chapter 16. Those three kind of form this unholy trinity, and you see the contrast between the two because the beast has a prostitute to exploit, but Jesus has a bride to serve and to love, and he is coming back. And I think what John is trying to highlight for you and me is this reality that there's, there's real Christianity, right? And then there's a lot of substitute versions of it. And that you and I, it's really important that we don't settle, that we understand that Christianity is the, the basis, the foundation of it is a love relationship with God. And you're like, what do you mean by substitute versions? I'll give you an example, right? The goal of Christianity is not to not sin. Now, not sinning is a wonderful byproduct of Christianity. Obedience to God is a wonderful byproduct, but the goal is not a comparison contest to see who can sin the least. The goal of Christianity is not sin avoidance. Again, wonderful byproduct. It'll be the best thing for your life, best thing for your heart, best thing for my heart and my life. But that's not the goal. You say, well, what's the goal? Romans 8, 29, that you and I would be conformed to the image of his son. That increasingly you and I would look more and more and more like Jesus and say, well, what, how do I do that? The best way, the best way to look 
increasingly like Jesus is to consistently look at Jesus. I'll say that to you again. The best way to look increasingly like him is to uh, consistently look at him. And the more you look at him, the more you will look like him. And the more you look like him, everything else falls into place. The more you look like him, the more you're going to obey him. The more you, the more you love him, the more you're going to respond to him. And so the idea is that the more you and I behold him, the more we look at him, focus our lives, gather the rhythms of our lives around whatever it is that we do, whether that's reading the word, whether that's fasting, whether that's worship, whether that's community, being part of a life group, whether that's serving and all those things, we gather our lives around those things so that we can look more at him. And as we look at him, we look like him. And as we look like him, what happens is we begin to love him. And as we love him, what did Jesus say? If you love me, you will obey, right? My commandments, right? That's the goal of Christianity, that we would look like him from looking at him. That's why this picture of Jesus as a groom makes sense. Listen, God is a lover. He is, a, and he loves you like a groom on a wedding day looking for his bride. It's why this imagery works so strongly in scripture. And so where does that leave you and me? It leaves you and me looking increasingly at him so we can look increasingly like him. It leaves you and me thinking, okay, I want to be ready for this moment, this moment when it comes, yes, out in the future, but I also want to be ready every day, responsive to God's spirit and whatever God is saying to me, I want to be ready to hear and so that when I hear, I can respond. And I respond not because I have to, but I respond because I want to. I respond out of love for him, not out of, man, I may get, I may get hammered if, if I don't. Weddings in, uh, in the East are are different than weddings here in the West. In the East, the emphasis is on the groom. Here, the emphasis is on the bride. They look different, they feel different, they have for a long time. What they do have in common is that the lion's share of preparation for the wedding, the lion's share of preparation falls upon the bride. But now the difference there is that the preparation was, in, was somewhat in the East is somewhat shared, right? So whenever the uh, young Jewish man and a young Jewish girl would get engaged, immediately the groom-to-be would go. If he was from a different town, a different village, he would go and he would build a space. Maybe that was adding on a room to his parents' house. Maybe it was building something separate. Maybe it was he wanted to make sure he found a space for them to live. And whenever he was done prepping that space, he would immediately, he would be done, and he would go and he would show up at the village where his bride-to-be was, and in many cases, it's time for the wedding. Right then, right then. So, the bride always had to be ready. She had to be prepared at a moment's notice that at any time, her groom could show up. That's why in Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus tells the parable of the 10 bridesmaids, remember there were five who were ready? They had their oil ready when night came, just in case the groom showed up at night, they were ready. And there were five who weren't ready. And because they weren't prepared, they didn't have oil ready in their lamps. They were locked out of the wedding. 
And when Jesus gets to the end of that parable, here's the, the point of the parable. He gives it Matthew chapter 25, verse 12. He says this, Watch therefore, for you neither, for you know neither the day nor the hour. I have resisted in this study in Revelation in giving you a timeline. Because the most important part of prophecy, the most important part of the end times is one word, imminence. And whatever your view, whether you are pre, post, ah, in the middle, before, uh, the most important word is imminent. That your theological view is shaped by the idea that Jesus could return anytime, any moment. Our groom could show here anytime. It could happen right now. That would have been great, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that have been awesome? <laughs> Call your shot, right? But because it hasn't happened yet, don't you know that is the kindness of God to us? That is the kindness of God. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, the kindness, the goodness, the grace of God, the mercy of God to you is that he's not yet come. And he's giving you yet another opportunity, right? Every wedding begins with a proposal. A proposal where, where the groom comes and he, and, and their culture was the same as our culture. Um, you know, we have all kinds of proposals today, right? Um, it used to be that proposal was kind of limited to uh, engagement. And now we have, like, don't even get me started on promposals, right? Now we got, everybody's got a, you know, with the proposal thing and all of that going on. But I just want you to know that I'm a little bit of a renaissance uh, man in this regard. Uh, long before you had to have a photographer at your proposal and your engagement, whenever I proposed to Angie back in uh, 19... <laughs> um, I had someone with me to video uh, the moment. And um, the only thing, you know, Angie and I were getting married during school. Uh, so we only had a week. And so we had to, to pre-plan a lot. And so she knew that it was coming. And the only, the only parameters that she gave me for the proposal was that she wanted to be surprised. That was all she gave me. And so... Um, I'm a, I'm a bit of a hopeless uh, romantic, and so I just thought I would take a minute this morning and show you just a little bit of um, my proposal to Angie for, for marriage. Today's your birthday. Today's your kid's birthday. Mm -hmm. There he is. Happy birthday. Twenty-five. Well, that's a good age for marriage. Uh-huh. Will you marry me? <laughs> <laughs> ah. What are you doing? <laughs> I know you're joking. <laughs> hey, uh -huh. Honey. Come here. Come here, man. Come here, man. 
If you're getting a little misty and you need a tissue, feel free to stand in the back. I mean, it's hard to measure up, I know, to that level of romance. Um, you couldn't hear the commentary, but just to give you a little bit of the back and forth there, uh, the first time I asked her, I said, will you marry me? Her comment was, I'll never forgive you for this. The second time I said, will you marry me? She said, you lied to me. You know you didn't do well, right, when those are the first two. And those are the first two things that are spoken uh, to you. Um, it's a propose. It's regardless of what, the, uh, maybe the funniest thing to me was whenever we loaded this video in this week. Chris and Anthony were back in the booth, and they we had to watch it when it was loaded in. We got to the end, and I you know I'm all kind of proud of it, and they kind of gave me this response like, "Why would she marry you?" <laughs> I don't know. I don't really have a good answer for that. <laughs> Those moments in our lives, right, they are full. They are full of love. They're full of expectation. They're full of, of desire. They're... And in the Revelation, Jesus gives us, from the beginning of the book, quite honestly, Jesus gives us, not just the original hearers, but, but us too. He gives us a proposal, a heartfelt proposal. Here's what he says in Revelation 3:20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You hear that you hear the proposal language in there. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would come, anyone regardless of who you are, where you've been, what you've done, what you've thought, what your doubts are, regardless of whether you have it all figured out, if anyone would open the door, I will come in. Um, I'll show you a, a picture. It's, I think I showed you this picture probably seven or eight years ago. It's a piece of art uh, from Warner Salmon. Um, it's called Jesus um, at the Door. And, and maybe I forgot to even load it in and send it to the team uh, this week. But you've seen it countless numbers of times. Um, Jesus in a garden, standing at a door, and he's knocking. And the thing that stands out about, um, about the door is that there's no door handle. Because we can only open, right, our hearts from the inside. It's a heart level, it's a heart level issue. So if you are here today and you are not a believer, right here, right now, in this very moment, 
the humble peasant king, the one who left glory to come, who died on a cross for your sins, is knocking. And he won't force himself in because that's not how love works. Only you can open that door from the inside. But if you're here today and you are a Christian, I would just remind you that these verses in Revelation 3.20, they are written to the church. They are written to believers. And although they have an application for both, that if you're here as a believer, every day, Son of God, Savior of the world, comes to your life and my life. And he knocks. And if you will open the door, if I will open the door, he will come in. And he will sit with you. He will dine with you. He will, the great goal of Christianity is that you and I would look like him and the way that we look like him is that we're looking at him, that we are constantly with him. Colossians chapter one, that in everything he might have the preeminence, that before you retaliate towards someone who's betrayed you, that in all things he might be preeminent, that he's first in how you respond. That before you clobber your kids or before you clobber your students for stepping out of line, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That the first thing you think, the first thought on your mind is him. How would he respond? What does he want? What does he want to sense? How is he shaping me in the middle of this difficult circumstance, this tough thing? Before you close the deal at work and you're only halfway honest, you're not fully honest, before you sign the ink, right, before you turn it in, what's going what, to, then in all things, he might have the preeminence. That he's the thing, that he's the one that is on your mind, that is on your heart, in and before anything else and everything else. And this sounds so crazy to say. But if the creator God of the universe, he wants to be with you, if you'll have him. In some ways, the history of mankind can be told in the context of meals, three of them. Adam and Eve took the shortcut meal in the Garden of Eden, the shortcut to trying to become their own gods. And when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they introduced sin and death into all of humanity. The enemy, by the way, offers the same shortcut meal to Jesus after he has fasted for 40 days. Right in Luke chapter 4, the enemy comes along and says, listen, there's a, a shortcut. Don't go to the cross. Don't go that way, right, to seek the worship of the world, which you, are, which you deserve. Well, all you have to do, if you'll follow me, if you'll bow down, Jesus resisted that meal, and instead he traded that for a smaller meal with his group of disciples the night before he goes to the cross, and he inter interrupts the Passover meal and says, this bread, this bread that we've been eating for thousands of years, this bread is really my body that is broken for you. And this cup, this cup that we've, that we've drunk together for this Passover meal for thousands of years, even though you didn't know it, what I'm telling you tonight is that it represents my blood that is about to be spilled for you. 
And Jesus, in essence, he asks them the same question that he's asking you and me today. Will you drink this with me? Will you join me? Will you have this communion with me? But the meal in the garden and the meal the night before the cross point us to another meal, to this marriage supper of the Lamb. That's why Jesus said to the disciples, I'll quote the old 1611 King James, right? Jesus looked at the disciples that night. He said, henceforth, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until when? Until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Paul told us as believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as often as you take this bread and as often as you drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death. How? Till he That whenever you and I gather, whenever we get together and we celebrate this communion, we look backwards towards our Savior, towards the broken body and the blood. And that calls us, it draws us to repentance. It draws us, hopefully, prayerfully, to love and relationship with him. But it also points us. It also points us to the future. So that every time we celebrate this communion together, It's a rehearsal dinner for eternity. Till that moment where that door is kicked wide open and our warrior king, our Messiah comes and he puts an end to all of the violence and all the brutality and all of the injustice. And we sit and we dine with him for all eternity. So there is no better way for us to end this service today than by celebrating communion together. If you're a believer, if you have aligned your life with the broken body and the blood of Jesus, this meal is both prayerful and hopeful. If you did not receive communion elements or you didn't pick those up on the way in and you would like those, just raise your hand. And one of our Connections team members will come around. They will bring uh, the elements uh, to you. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for us. And during this prayer time, it's your opportunity. It's my opportunity, right, to square up with God. It's my opportunity to repent and make sure that I'm looking at him, that the rhythms of my life are gathered around the most important thing, not just a thing. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is your opportunity during this prayer time to make the decision to align your life with him. In the end, there's only two meals. As much as I see scripture, we're all aligned with one of them. The feast of the birds, the feast of the bride. And God leaves that decision to us. Let's pray together. Lord, words like thank you seem so small and insignificant in a moment like this. And so, God, um, it is your kindness, your word says, that leads us, that turns us, that guides us towards uh, repentance. And so this morning, God, right now, in the just quiet of this moment, we are turning our heart your direction. We are uh, reflecting our hearts are drawn to you and your goodness and your grace and your broken body, and your blood, 
understanding and knowing that we have been reborn for all eternity. God, we are so grateful. And at the same time, we are so hopeful that in the midst of violence, we see victory. Help us, God, to be light. Light in the middle of darkness. Light that shines no matter what happens in and around us. We pray along with the writer of Revelation. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. The night before Jesus went to the cross, he took bread, and the scriptures say that he blessed it, and then he broke it, and then he said, take and eat. This is my body. The scriptures say that he took the cup. When he had blessed it, he gave thanks. And he gave it to the disciples. Saying, drink all of it. For this is my blood that was spilled for you. For the remission or for the payment of sin. Blessed, beautiful communion. And so, scriptures say that after the disciples, after they had that meal, that they went out to the Mount of Olives and that they sang together. And so, um, this morning, um, I'm grateful for uh, our worship team that allowed me to choose the song that we are going to sing. And it is a song that is focused on our gratitude for the broken body and for the blood of Jesus called thank you Jesus for the blood but it is also hopeful the second verse says um, you took my place laid inside my tomb of sin you were buried for three days but then you walked right out again and now death first Corinthians 15 now death has no sting in John 14 and life has no end for I have been transformed by the blood of the lamb. And so this morning, this is our opportunity to corporately as a body express gratitude, to say thank you back to Jesus. It is our opportunity to declare hope into our future as we actively engage our minds and our hearts in worship because of him all because of him we are reinaltus in our autartu we are reborn we've been given new eternal life